this is a big day for us. It goes without saying. It's a sacred day, really. Uh, our first day of public worship. And I'm going to be honest. Think about what to say in our first sermon as a congregation has been a very intimidating process. How do you begin not just when you're beginning a sermon, you're not just beginning a sermon series, when you're beginning a church? The closest thing I can compare it to from my own experience is that first day, I remember it like it was yesterday, that first day that I sat down in front of my computer to start typing my dissertation. You guys, many of you are in school or have been to school. You know, you could probably resonate with this experience. You know that day when you, you know you've got that paper due and you open up that Word document for the first time? For those of you with discriminating tastes, you open your Pages document for the first time. And, and there's that bright, white, blank page just staring you in the face, reminding you of all you haven't done and of all the, the pain and the suffering that, that lies ahead of you. Just the only thing on the page is that blinking cursor, you know, just mocking you, beckoning you to this work that you don't want to do. I, that's that's kind of what it feels like, except that, except that this is a beautiful work in which we are not starting from scratch. Our conviction is that we're gathered here today as a brand new church, not because we're innovative, but because we're gathered around the same thing that every healthy church has been gathered around since the days when Jesus was here. That we are gathered around uh, an ancient testimony to Jesus' life and to his teachings and to the church that he founded. A testimony that, that we call the gospel. And we're confident that we're, that we're gathered here uh, because of the faithfulness of God to that gospel to work itself out in our lives. And that he's going to continue to do that here. So what we figured was the best place to start, if that's what's gathering us here, if that's our connection to all the churches that have come before us, the best place to start is with what's probably the oldest surviving account of Jesus' life and work, the Gospel of Mark. Mark was one of the first people that we know of who actually in print applied the word gospel to Jesus. And he does it in the very first sentence out of the gate in his little book. This, he tells us, is, is, is going to be the gospel of or about Jesus. The, the good news, the pleasant tidings of Jesus. What follows is a story about Jesus and about Jesus' significance. But it, it's not what we think of as a typical biography, right? This is not Boswell on Samuel Johnson or David McCullough on John Adams, one of these massive volumes that uncovers every rock and gives you every detail whether you wanted to know it or not about a person's life that's that that's not what mark is is trying to do it it's much more focused than that in fact mark never gives us any kind of physical description of jesus he tells us what he looks like you know we got those pictures that hang on the wall in the sunday school classes typically right but that that sort of iconic jesus that's mark doesn't give us anything like that he doesn't give us any sense of Jesus' birth or his childhood or where he went to school, what kind of influences were, uh, were had over him in his early life. He gives us none of that. Every detail in Mark is there to make a specific point. And when you boil it down, every detail in Mark is there to answer three basic questions. Who is Jesus? 
What did Jesus come here to do? And what does Jesus require of you? Mark structures everything in his book to help answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? And what does Jesus require of you? I believe that your life depends on your answer to these three questions. I'm certain that the health and the efficacy of our church depends on the answer to these three questions. And so for the next few months, we're going to spend time walking through Mark to find out what his answers are. Now, it's a story, right? It's not a legal brief. So he doesn't just go from one question to the next to the next and answer them in turn. He answers them in bits and pieces here and there. It's much more organic than that. He gives it to us in little stories and little bits of Jesus' teaching and commentary of his own. But in the passage we're going to begin with today, in Mark chapter 1, we get some, a very clear sense of what's going to come in answer to each question. We're going to take them one by one, each question one at a time. First, though, let's, let's read the passage together. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. If you wouldn't mind, would you stand with me while we read in honor of God's word? Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So who is Jesus? You students know the key to a strong paper, right, is a good, clear thesis statement. You guys remember, those of you who aren't in school now, you remember this, right? You probably learned the hard way, if you were like me. You need a solid claim that you're trying to make, and then you need to make sure that every detail you include in that paper ties back to that claim in a really clear way, helps to flesh it out, helps to persuade your readers that that claim is true. 
Mark essentially gives us that in verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is going to be the key. This is going to be the, the, the rod that he hangs every detail on throughout the rest of the book. He is trying to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he is in some mysterious way God himself, and that him coming to earth is good news for you. That's Mark's ultimate claim. I think in that first sentence, we get, the, we get a real clear sense of who he's going to tell us Jesus is throughout the rest of the book. Jesus, I think if we isolate this sentence and the, and the, and the couple of, of verses right after it, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, and somehow, in some mysterious way, Jesus is God himself. Let's take these one at a time. So, so Jesus is the Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, early on, this thing, the word Christ became almost part of Jesus' name, like a title that you would use. And that's certainly the way we use it. We're so familiar with it. We say Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. I think sometimes the significance packed into that term is lost on us. When Mark said that, when he identified Jesus in this way, he was evoking all kinds of Old Testament expectations and applying them directly to Jesus. In other words, Jesus didn't come in a vacuum. He didn't come out of nowhere. He comes in fulfillment of a host of specific promises made to Israel and to the world. The, the Old Testament is a story of God being faithful to a covenant he made with Abraham, recorded way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. Him being faithful to those promises in spite of Israel's faithlessness over and over and over again. And one of the key moments in that story is when David, Israel's prototypical faithful king, nears the end of his life. God makes a special covenant with him that sharpens the covenant he had made with Abraham. And he promises David that, that someone in your line, another faithful king, will come and reign over Israel and will do that forever in perfect peace and harmony, in fellowship with God and obedience to him. A kingdom is coming that won't end. An anointed one, anointed just as David had been, was coming. Mark is identifying that person as Jesus. Christ means the anointed one. Jesus, in other words, is the long-awaited person who would come and save his people and rule over them in peace. But he doesn't stop there. Mark raises the bar on Jesus' identity when he applies this phrase, Son of God, to him. This is one of Mark's favorite ways to describe Jesus. It comes up over and over again throughout the book. Uh, we find it even in the mouth of demons that Jesus is casting out. They acknowledge him as the Son of God and, 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 and beg him not to, not to cast them out. It wasn't a given, though, that the one who was coming, the anointed one that they'd been waiting on, was going to be the Son of God. No they didn't necessarily expect that. Uh, but if anything, it was, I imagine, surprising to them to find Jesus identified that way. After all, the, the great figures that they looked back to in, in Israel's history were all just humans, right? Think about Abraham and Moses, David, all the prophets. The, the, the anointed one who was going to reign over David's line could have just been another one of those. Just an average but particularly faithful human being. Mark identifies Jesus as certainly not less than human, but he's also a whole lot more than human. 
And the rest of his story is going to make this point again and again as we see Jesus doing things that no human could ever do. We see Jesus healing the sick. We see him even raising the dead. We see him teaching with an authority that no one else had ever taught with. We see him casting out demons, and those same demons, as I mentioned, essentially worshiping him or acknowledging him as the Son of God. The Christ, for Mark, is also the Son of God. But then there's one more layer to this, to who Jesus is for Mark. It comes in those next couple verses where he quotes from the Old Testament. He identifies the quote as Isaiah. The key to it is, is this passage from Isaiah. We typically look at this section of verses as, come, as, as, as being about John the Baptist, because that's where he's going, right? And the, and the one, the messenger that he refers to here, that's coming to prepare the way, that is John the Baptist. We're meant to see them that way. But the really interesting thing embedded in this verse is that the one whose way is being prepared, the one that we're, we're told John is coming to prepare for, is identified as the Lord, using the title that Israel only ever applied to the one true God, to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who created everything. Mark, applying this Old Testament quotation to Jesus, identifies Jesus as the Lord in a way that we cannot afford to overlook just because we're used to it. That was revolutionary. Mysterious, yes, but revolutionary. Who is Jesus? According to Mark, Jesus is the Christ. He's the one that that Israel had been waiting on to come and establish a kingdom of peace that would last forever. He's also somehow the Son of God and in some mysterious way, he is God himself. So the real question to be asked is, if Jesus is God, what had to be done? What did Jesus have to accomplish that would make it necessary for God himself to become human and walk this earth? It's one of the questions that has provoked some of the most fruitful writing throughout all of Christian history. One of the classic Christian questions, why did God have to become human? And Mark, bring, Mark is raising it for us here. That's why I think to answer the first question, who is Jesus, we really have to understand why Jesus came. His identity is tied up with this question about what Jesus came to do. So what did Jesus come to do? Mark doesn't open with one of those crystal clear statements that we wish he opened with. So Matthew has this angel in the, in the beginning of his story that says his, his name is going to be Jesus and he's going to save his people from his sins. Point blank. There it is. Mark tells us it's good news. He doesn't come out and say here's exactly what Jesus is coming to do. Not here in this first chapter. But in the series of stories that make up the bulk of this paragraph, he gives us several important clues as to what Jesus is here to do. What I want to do is, is take these clues one by one as we look at each story and then, and then once we get to the end of that, try to come up with a sense of the whole, to make sense out of the whole, what all these clues are pointing to. W- answering that simple question, what did Jesus come to do? I think the first clue, the first clue is actually not directly related to Jesus at all. Mark, like a couple of the other Gospels, first character that you see doing real action is not Jesus. It's this guy, John the Baptist. But the story about John the Baptist here in Mark chapter 1 is building towards John's proclamation. If you look at the end of that little paragraph in verses 7 and 8, the whole the story, all of its action builds 
to that statement where he says that the one, he tells everyone who's come to him for something, that there's someone coming after him that is actually greater. I think that what we're meant to understand here is that whatever it was John was doing, whatever we can learn about John helps us understand that Jesus was coming to do it better. The same thing, but more fully. John was provisional. He was there to point towards Jesus, to call people and get them ready for Jesus to come. But then whatever Jesus was coming to do, it was to fulfill what John had done. So what was John doing? And he's quite a character. You got, all this, you got all this detail about the kind of clothes that he was wearing, this, this camel hair and eating locusts and honey. And, and that would have been just as strange to the people who first read this as it is to us. That was not in fashion. Right? This was not vintage clothing. This, this was extreme, and it was to make a point. But the real crux of the matter is not even John's clothes, not even first and foremost the fact that he's out in the wilderness. It's, it's the message that he's preaching. What John is preaching is that people should repent, they should turn from their sins, and they should be baptized to symbolize a cleansing. What people need, in other words, for John is forgiveness. They need a solution to the sin problem. I think we're meant to see through that detail, that when John gets to the end of the paragraph and he's preaching that one is coming who's mightier, who's going to bring the Spirit, we're, we're meant to understand that the sin problem John was calling for, uh, for a solution is, is, is not going to be solved until this one who is mightier than him arrives on the scene to do it. And that somehow the solution, the, the forgiveness of sins John was calling people to requires this one to come and this one to bring the Holy Spirit. Somehow the baptism in the Spirit is to effect a solution to the sin problem. What needs to happen is someone to come here and to transform people. Not to wash them on the outside, but to make them new on the inside. That reference to the Spirit comes with a whole host of Old Testament prophetic background uh, verses that promise that one day the solution to Israel's inability to be faithful to God was going to be a transformation, not of the outside, not of the externals, but of the inside. The prophets promise, God through the prophets promises that, that, that there's a transformation coming where he will write his law on their hearts, right? Think about Ezekiel's image of the the valley of dry bones coming to life. There's transformation that happens through God's word and through, in particular, the spirit who breathes new life. John is calling people to solve their sin problem, but he's telling them for that to happen, one who's mightier than me has to come. First clue is Jesus came somehow and in some way that is going to be developed through the rest of this book to solve the problem with sin that had held back everyone who has ever walked the earth. The next clue comes in the next story, the story of Jesus' baptism. John gives us very little detail. I mean, he's, he gets to the point, as you can see. He gives two, three verses to the baptism of Jesus. It's a story ultimately designed to show that Jesus is the one John was talking about, right? You get John's last statement that one is coming who's mightier than me he's gonna he's gonna baptize you not with water but with the spirit and then the next thing that happens is jesus going out to john in the wilderness to be baptized 
Jesus is the one John was talking about. That's, that's the overall effect of the story. But we have more questions, don't we? I think the question we all, we all want answered is, why does Jesus have to be baptized for, the repentant, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins? If that's what John's baptism was about, what is, what is Jesus going out and getting baptized for? Mark's not asking that question. He just doesn't go there. His story isn't concerned with why it had to happen, simply that it did happen and it marked him as the authoritative son of God. All of the details in the account point to that. They're all weighted with more of these Old Testament illusions, things like the heavens opening and the spirit descending. This is the guy who was bringing the spirit. But the most important piece to the entire story is the word of God spoken about Jesus to Jesus at the conclusion of his baptism. The heavens open, the spirit comes down looking like a dove somehow mysteriously, and God speaks. The God who had been silent since the last prophets had spoken hundreds of years earlier, the God that they had been waiting to hear from, that they had been looking for a prophet to speak the word of God to them. He, he speaks himself directly in a voice that somehow gets understood by people who are watching. And he says to Jesus, you are my son. In you, I am well pleased. This was a phrase, an identification, never used for any other figure anywhere else in the Bible. Others had been identified as a friend of God or the uh, faithful king representing God like David. No one had ever been called directly God's son. The only time that this phrase, son of God, had ever been applied to anyone in the Old Testament was when it was applied to Israel. In Exodus, God is speaking to Pharaoh, calling for Pharaoh to release his people from bondage. He refers to them as his son, collectively, as a nation, his son, wanting them to come out and, and to worship him. Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm number 2, the, the famous one about the king that, uh, that we understand to apply forward to Jesus, also uses this for, for the prototypical faithful king who represents Israel. But no individual had ever, had ever been identified as God's son. I think the key that we're supposed to, to see here, not just the identification of Jesus as God's son, but the fact that God is well pleased in him, fulfills expectations that had been created hundreds of years earlier where Israel had repeatedly failed to live in faithfulness. Jesus is God's true and faithful son. I love the way one of the, one of the commentators I read this week put this. Let me quote, let me get, read you a little bit from it. He says, To no prophet had words been spoken such as the words to Jesus at the baptism. Abraham was a friend of God, Moses a servant of God, Aaron a chosen one of God, David a man after God's own heart, and Paul an apostle. But only Israel and the king as Israel's leader had been called God's son before. But where Israel failed, Jesus takes its place. God is well pleased in Jesus. John tells us that Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He came to please God. 
Why did Jesus come? He came to solve the problem of sin through bringing the Spirit. He came to please God. A third clue comes in the next story, the story of Jesus' temptation. Mark gives us barely any detail at all about this account. Again, it's one of those that you you just wish you could have been there to see how this whole thing plays out, but Mark isn't going there. He gets straight to the point. He wants you to know why this matters. He doesn't just come out and say it, but he, in, in the, de- in the few, few select details he gives you, he, he lets you know why this account is so important. I think the place to begin is with the Spirit. If you look at, that, at the story in verses 12 and 13, the first thing we're told is that the Spirit, immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's a very strong word, chosen very specifically. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. This is the same spirit that marks him as the one who is coming. It's the same spirit that he's supposed to be giving to people to transform them. It is a key to his ministry, the whole purpose of him being here, and now it's driving him out to encounter temptation. Satan doesn't sneak up on him in the way that temptation normally works for us. Jesus goes out to meet him. That he does this at the prompting of the spirit shows us that this showdown with Satan is somehow part of why Jesus came. This is in part what Jesus came to do. That he does this in the wilderness and he does it for 40 days also matters. These are all allusions to the Old Testament. The wilderness as a place of testing for the people of Israel who were there for 40 years, not just 40 days. Or allusion to Moses who goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Or for Elijah who's led to Mount Horeb for, for 40 days. The, through the wilderness. It's a place of testing, a place to see where faithfulness lies. At root, this story is another confirmation of Jesus' status as God's son. It's the first of many pointers that Mark is going to give us to Jesus' victory over Satan, over the powers of evil. But at least in this victory, at least we see an echo of the showdown with Satan that Adam in the garden failed to complete. In Jesus' victory over Satan, we see one who is able to do what Adam, our representative head, could not do. The final clue, and the clue where all of these things come together, is in Jesus' own statement in verse 14 and 15. Jesus comes into his own, ready for his ministry as Mark pass, or excuse me, as John passes off of the scene. He gets arrested. Now Jesus, now the one who, who was sent to prepare for Jesus, his work is done. And Jesus comes into his own ministry. And as he, as he comes, Mark gives us a summary of what he was preaching as he entered Galilee. It was simply this. Jesus preached that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is where all the clues come together. The kingdom of God, a, a sphere in which God and his people relate to each other in harmony and peace and obedience and loving kindness. That is the great goal of the Old Testament. It's the goal of the covenant promises to Abraham. It's the goal of God's interaction with Israel and leading them out of Egypt and into a promised land where the key phrase is, he would be their God and they would be his people phrase comes comes up over and over again. That's the goal of the Old Testament. 
here, excuse me, there, the pervasive problem was always not God's faithfulness to his promises, but the, the inability of his people to live as his people, to live as if he were their God. Over and over again, we see them turning their back on him, exchanging the God who created them and redeemed them for the gods of their neighbors. Over and over again, they break his law. From creation all the way through, this humanity created in God's image to represent him and reflect his character on earth, traded in the image of God for the image of created things. Now, here, at the fulfillment of time, in Jesus, God himself came to earth to establish his kingdom once and for all. And he came to secure for his kingdom willing subjects by his faithfulness on their behalf. He came to establish a kingdom no former leader could establish, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, no other prophet. And he, he came to establish it through his own authority to forgive sins and to give the spirit that was going to be the key for his people to be able to live in faithfulness. He came to establish the kingdom as the one in whom God is well pleased on behalf of those who cannot on their own please God, but are pleasing to God in him. He came to defeat Satan and all, his, all of his temptations, and he did it for those who can't resist. He's the one, Mark is going to show us later, who came to die to give his own life as a ransom for many. Jesus came at the fulfillment of time to establish on earth the kingdom of God that had been the goal ever since creation. And he came to do it in himself. What did Jesus come to do? He came to restore the broken relationship between the creator God and his created beings. The kingdom is here and it's now and it is in Jesus. So, what does he demand from us? If Jesus is the Christ, if he's the Son of God, if he is in fact God himself come here to impart the Spirit, to establish a kingdom of willing subjects, of worshipers for God, in whom God is well pleased because of his faithfulness, if that's what Jesus came to do, what does he demand from us? He doesn't demand perfection. The very fact that he had to come to please God proves that he knows we haven't and couldn't on our own. He doesn't demand any kind of worthiness. He is worthy for us. What Jesus demands of us is simply our allegiance, which is to say our repentance and our faith. He demands that we trade in all competing sovereignties in our life and embrace his authority to relate to God on our behalf. This is where the facts of Jesus' identity and mission become wonderfully relevant for you. Remember, Mark began this whole thing by claiming that this is good news, that Jesus, his identity, his mission, it's good news, and it's, and it's good news for you as his readers. But how could the fact that he's established his kingdom be good news if there's no way for us to unite to it? 
it's only good news for us if we can connect with what Jesus came to do. The good news is that receiving it, receiving this good news, the right to live in peace with God and His kingdom is not a right that gets earned. Jesus came, after all, because you couldn't be worthy, because you needed someone to grant you forgiveness. You needed someone to please God on your behalf. You needed someone to die so that you wouldn't have to. And he addresses his message about the kingdom to those he knows are already sinful. That's why he calls on them to repent and believe the gospel. These two things are two sides, really, of the same coin. Repentance is simply a, a turning away from all other things that demand our attention and our allegiance. A trading in of all the other things that we use to give ourselves identity and value to establish our worth as people, our, our reason for being. It's to turn from other sources of security. It's to turn away from other gods. Now, the people of Israel, were, they were prone to take the gods of the neighboring nations. They would hear about a god that represented maybe the harvest. And they would, they would think that they wanted good harvest, and so they, they would think we need to honor this God who's supposed to supply them. They would turn for their security, for their identity, for their, their standing in the world to these gods of the neighboring nations. Now, we've gotten more sophisticated. We've got our gods, too. We, we all have some thing or some collection of things that's at the at the root of who we are in the world, of, of how we understand ourselves, of what, what we, how we justify breathing and, 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 and going through life. Now, we don't sacrifice bulls or goats to these gods, this king whose kingdom we're serving, but, but we sacrifice time. If, you, if you're God, if your sense of identity and worth is in, is in your work, you sacrifice time that you could be spending on other things in order to make it happen. Maybe you sacrifice relationships that you prefer to give up or let fall away because so that you can feed this other thing in your life that is ultimately what gives you value and meaning. Your God is what you rest on for your sense of value. It's the basis on which you compare to others. And it's the thing that when, you, when it gets threatened makes you feel anxious. And it's this allegiance to these false gods that's at the root of all of our individual sins. Every time we choose to do something contrary to what God has told us we should do or, or not do in Scripture, what we're choosing is to do something some other thing in our lives is telling us to do. We're, tr we're trading in the system of value God has supplied us in His Word for another competing vision for what is good and what is necessary. Every sin we do is a statement about what we value more. Repentance, then, is first and foremost a call to root out those competing allegiances from our heart. It's not simply a command to clean up the externals of your life. It is that, but it is so much more. It's a command to relinquish the rule over your life to the only one in whom you can find fulfillment. The call to faith, on the other hand, is the call to believe positively in Jesus. The call to repentance is to turn away from other securities, from, from false gods. The call to faith that Jesus gives us in verse 15, the call to believe in the gospel is a call to rest for our identity and our security only on Jesus. We can rest secure under his authority not because we are worthy subjects, but because we 
can be worthy in him. To believe the gospel is to submit to the fact that he is worth us staking ourselves to him. Faith is the decision to embrace Jesus' kingship over all other allegiances. Ultimately, we've all, we've all got them. What's yours? Can it hold the weight that you're hanging on it? Can it give you peace with God and others? Can it, can it give you whatever that thing is? Can it give other people reason enough for them to accept you? Maybe you're here today realizing that whatever it is you've been resting on is starting to crumble. Maybe through some disappointment in your life. You failed to meet the standards you'd set for yourself, perhaps, or that others had set over you. You've realized, perhaps, that you aren't what you thought you were. Maybe, maybe that identity that has given you a sense of grounding in the world is starting to crumble. If, if that's you, Jesus is calling you to a peace in his kingdom with the one who created you with the one who gave you a longing that only he could satisfy, with the one who, put an, who, 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 who created you so that there would always be an emptiness in you if he is not at the center of your life, an emptiness that you may have tried to fill through relationships or through money, through some sort of success, through any, any variety of pleasure, but it's an emptiness that's going to stay empty until you rest in Jesus. Maybe... You're feeling guilty today. Maybe you've recognized that you have failed to fulfill even the standards that you set over others. Jesus came to give you peace with the God who put in you a consciousness that there is a difference between right and wrong and that all too often you've come up on the wrong side of that equation. Have you recognized lately that you don't even live up to the standards that you set over other people? How would you feel if you knew at work, if you knew that that your, the, the people under your authority were treating their job in the same way that you treat your responsibility to those who are in authority over you. Would you how would that make you feel? How would, it make you, how would it make you feel to know that your spouse is watching the same things on TV or on her, her or his computer that you are? How would that make you feel? Have you realized that you have failed to live up to your own standards? If so, that's your conscience. It's not perfect but it's a reliable guide that's placed in you by your maker to make sure that you know that you're not okay. Jesus promises peace in spite of guilt through willing submission to his kingdom. You are pleasing to God in Jesus. You can be transformed through the spirit Jesus came to bring. Now maybe... The majority of you out there are believers. Maybe you've been believers for a long time, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, this is the part where I talk to those who don't believe. But that is so far from the truth. Jesus' message, what Jesus requires from us, repentance and faith, these things are the shape of the Christian life. These things are what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. They weren't finished when you converted wasn't done at VBS for you or youth camp or in college or wherever it was that you first believed. All of us live as 
subjects of a kingdom Jesus came to bring in, a kingdom that is here now partly, but not here yet fully. And so all of us live with hearts that have pockets of resistance to Jesus' rule and authority in our lives. They're like little insurgencies that fight away in us and pull us back to things, to, to other sources of security, to other places of rest. Ours, then, is a daily battle to preach the gospel to ourselves, to preach to ourselves the good news that Jesus resisted temptation for us, that he gives us the power of the Spirit so that we can too, and that he calls us to peace through obedience to the King, to turn away from all other allegiances and to renounce all other citizenships and to rest in the security that his kingdom provides. In the weeks to come, through the chapters of Mark, we're going to see many examples of different responses to Jesus' life and ministry, to Jesus' call for repentance and faith. We're going to see a lot of different responses. But, in short, the facts of Jesus' existence, his claim that the kingdom of God is here and now and in him, presents all of us with a choice that we can't escape. We don't get to think of Jesus as simply another good teacher as some sort of heroic revolutionary or some sort of effective leader of men. We don't get to find him historically interesting in the way that we might find Winston Churchill or Che Guevara interesting. We are presented with a choice of two options. The world is divided between two sorts of people, and we are going to be on one side of that divide. We will either worship him as Lord or we're going to worship something else. That is the fundamental choice that Jesus' call to us leaves us with today. We will worship him as Lord or we're going to worship something else. May God give us eyes to see. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, that you have not left us in our sin. Thank you that in Jesus we can be pleasing to you and worthy of your kingdom and all all that it promises us. Help us to see, O Lord, the beauty that there is in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. We know that the eyes of faith are only opened by the power of your spirit. So we thank you for the one who came to bring that spirit to us. And we pray that you would pour it over each and every one of us here. That you would stir in our hearts an affection for the kingdom in which we have peace and security. We pray that you would give us a hatred competing allegiances festering away in our hearts. Give us eyes to see, we pray, O Lord, to hear and respond to your word. We thank you for it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.